Are we going to talk about these things? What are we yeah, going to yeah. do? Yeah, I think we should. Where's, this is it? Okay. Where's David? I guess we're going to talk right now. Yeah. There's still some people on the bus. Okay, <laughs> all right, we can, start, start we can start the, the discussion. Uh, and I was very personally involved because SNCC became an all-black organization uh, in the late 60s, 67 or so. And uh, it was a big strain. It was a terrible thing to go through. But I understood what was, what was happening. Because if you understand and practice the philosophy of dialectics, almost any phenomenon, physical or whatever, has more than one aspect. It has positive and negative aspects. And whatever is prominent or most, it de depends on the material uh, and historical circumstances. So when black power came on the scene, it was tremendously positive. Black is beautiful. Take back our, our heritage. Take back our, our beauty. Take back our courage and our worthiness. It was tremendously important for the movement to have black power. One of the ironies, of course, is that as SNCC had, SNCC had been a brotherhood, uh, a, a circle of brothers and sisters, uh, brothers and sisters in a circle of trust, and the beloved community. And now, just as Malcolm X, who is the great black prince of black nationalism, is going from a narrow nationalist position to a revolutionary national, nationalist position, and saying that it doesn't matter about the color of your eyes or your skin, if you're revolutionary and you're fighting for uh, people of color and oppressed people, you're with me. So he was going from that's the basic types of nationalism. White nationalism is always pure and simple, reactionary and backward. So it's arguable that you can have all black formations and black nationalism that is not reactionary. But there are two forms of black nationalism. One is revolutionary black nationalism and one is narrow black nationalism. And revolutionary nationalism is the type of black nationalism, in my view, that Malcolm was moving to when he went to Mecca and he saw Muslims with blue eyes, blonde hair, and he says, okay, it's not just race, it's a revolutionary nationalism that we're talking about. So it was a little bit ironic that Malcolm was moving to a more revolutionary, inclusive black nationalism, and SNCC had always been integrated is moving to a, an exclusivist, narrow black nationalism. And the danger in that is that pushed to its natural extreme, it's black people say, we don't need or want any allies. Mm -hmm. And you strip yourself and you're systematically stripped of all of your allies. All of the shaky white people and so forth that were looking for an exit, they said, oh, that's it. Okay, you don't want you don't want us. You don't want our money. You want our, we're gone. So, COINTELPRO. How many people have heard of COINTELPRO? What is COINTELPRO? Program. COINTELPRO is the program of the federal government of the United States counterintelligence program, COINTELPRO, to destabilize and destroy the civil rights movement run by the federal government to attack Dr. King, SCLC, NAACP, <laughs> Korsnick, and all of us. 
and that was used. And this movement in Mississippi, and especially the white uh, organizing that we began right after black power was introduced, was used as our federal government as a way to put federal agents into the movement as training so that they can learn to destabilize grassroots organizing all over the world. So they trained on the civil rights movement. And that narrow black nationalism lent itself to that because it would be able to take uh, something to its logical extreme, push it completely beyond a positive to, so that it turns into its opposite, it becomes a negative. That's dialectics. Uh, we just had a situation in uh, North Carolina, which is one reason I want, uh, I'm waiting, anxious for Michael to talk about uh, Black Lives Matter. Now, Black Lives Matter is a very positive thing and has done a tre tremendous amount of good, especially with white leftists who have always abrogated the racial question and said classes and economy is the only thing that's important. Oh, we don't care about women's issues, uh, Latino issues or anything, just class and just economy. No, that's not true. And it's very good that Black Lives Matter young people <coughs> went to Bernie first and said, Bernie, you got to talk about race. Well, maybe I'll get to that, but I'm going to do my stump speech first. And they said, think again, brother. You know, you're not going to do that because we're not going to let you. We're going to force you to look at the central place that race plays and Black Lives Matter in this politics. So recently in North Carolina, we just had uh, in, in February, February the 14th, we had about 30 to 40,000 people demonstrating in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I'm sure you didn't read about it because when we had 100,000 demonstrating in Raleigh, North Carolina, we had over 1,000 people arrested at the legislature. I don't think you heard about that either, did you? Did anybody hear about that? When was that? In North Carolina, two years ago. My 18th arrest was in the legislature with 17 other people. And after that, over a thousand people were arrested in the legislature in, in Raleigh, North Carolina. It's not covered by our controlled press. Now, in our uh, recent demonstration, just two or three weeks ago, uh, some people purporting to be Black Lives Matter tried to block uh, that, that march. This is a march of thousands and thousands of people, 50-50, black and white people getting together on all of the issues. And some people are taking this now. And, and does that become then police action? Is, uh, you know, are the police beginning to use these contradictions again in the same way to split people up? Because some of those people who blocked that march actually swung on and physically attacked some of our elder uh, ministers, like Kojo from Green, Greensboro one of the major black leaders in uh, the movement in North Carolina. So this is the kind of contradiction you see that they, can, that they can use. So there are two basic types of black nationalism in my view, which is revolutionary black nationalism and narrow black nationalism. And you have to make, you need to make a distinction on those. I've been right behind you the whole oh, time. Oh, there you are. <laughs> I've been listening the whole time. Okay. <laughs> oh, so I guess it's my turn now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, to talk about Black Lives Matter, I, like, to make this make sense, first of all, to like why I'm a part of it, 
and, and how it relates to everything else that's going on. Um, in a few conversations with some people over, to, over like the last three months, I've remembered some things that I've forgotten. Um, I got out of jail when I was 16 years old and they sent me to this school up in North Seattle called Ingram. And I smoked cigarettes back then. I smoke vapes now. And, and it was illegal for, for somebody who was 16 years old to smoke cigarettes. And there weren't that many black people at this school. But there was about like 60 or 70 people across the street from the school smoking during the lunch. And um, a cop rolls by and picks out the three people of color in that crowd to give us our minor in possession citations. When I asked the cop why he only picked the people of color, he dragged me down the hall and they expelled me from school. I only asked the question, and I'd forgotten that until a while ago. Maybe about six months to a year after that, you know, I was with this guy, and you know, we were on our way to go out and see my friends, my cousins. And he was gonna sell them some weed and shit. So, you know, it was some illegal stuff going on there. And we stopped at this house on the way, a friend of ours that we knew, and the guy started arguing up at their apartment building. And so there was some static that was going on. And I'm down on the curb, standing out there. And next thing I know, these, these two people are walking down the sidewalk. I get dropped and beat to the ground. And they had one of those rock retaining walls, you know, those things that they pick up and it, it's just, just big boulders. And they picked me up and they slammed me on those rocks. After they had me pinned down and they sliced my throat and almost crushed my larynx. And if they would have crushed that larynx, that would have killed me. <clears throat> these were two undercover cops that never identified themselves. I was an unviolent, unincorporated, uninvolved citizen. I, I just blocked this out of my memory, right? Because we normalize that type of violence. Never got an apology, never got charged. And my friend at the time had like about a pound and a half of weed in his trunk. And he was like, if you don't say nothing, they're not gonna charge me. I don't, you know, and I just forgot about that until a couple months ago. But this, this was the experiences that we were having with police. I'm at the UW and, I'm, and, I, and I got this question about the school to prison pipeline. You know, I, I dealt with it. I'd been kicked out of four schools. All of my friends, most of the friends that I grew up with were already in prison. You know, I'm, I'm living this thing, but I don't have like the science and the data to back it up. Like, like most of this more wealthy white America likes us to, to provide when we're having these arguments, like, like the, the problems that we're having aren't realistic. Like we're not being beat by the police. Like we're not being um, racially targeted and being stopped because my windows were too dark. Um, I had tints on my window and he came up and put a, uh, a what, I don't know what you call it. He regulated how tinted my windows were. Um, and so we have to have proof to back these things up. So I started taking a look at the school to prison pipeline. I wanted to know who was responsible because I, I didn't have a principal for it at the time. I wanted to know whose door to knock down um, if somebody was responsible. And I started going through Michelle Alexander's book and it ripped apart the layers in the system and how deep it goes. And I went to Greece to study some immigration and, and I thought that the problems were elsewhere. You know, I kind of blocked Trayvon Martin out of my head. And Trayvon Martin's really important because that's when Black Lives Matter started. Patricia and um, Alicia Garza, and there, were, there was one other, I can't remember her name right now. Um, they started that to challenge that type of law. 
And I thought the stand your ground law was kind of cool, right? Because if, if somebody's messing with my mama and she's got something to protect herself and she doesn't have nobody around or ain't no police around, like, like they should be able to do that. They should be able to defend themselves so that they're not getting harmed, just like what we heard from Kamal. But the way that law was twisted around was really, really ugly. And what they were able to justify with that was, was sick. And so they, they, they rose up to challenge that. I didn't even know about Black Lives Matter back then. And a lot of us over here in, in Washington didn't either. So, you know, I'm over there in Greece and I'm, I'm coming back from working on immigration over there. And I, I had forgotten about those two other instances, but my second night in Greece, I'm standing outside, again, smoking a cigarette. Maybe I should stop smoking cigarettes. <laughs> it said it's going to kill me. I don't know if it's going to be the cigarettes or the cops, man. But anyhow, so I'm smoking a cigarette in the smoking section at the, at the dormitory in Greece. And I have four cops over there do 40 miles an hour around this corner. And they're, they're on two motorcycles. And the two ones that are on the rear of the motorcycles, they're holding on and they're also carrying assault rifles. They come to a screeching halt, jump off the the bikes and drop their rifles like two inches from my face. And they start screaming at me in Greek about who am I and where am I from? Now, everybody in Greece smokes cigarettes. I swear. And they all walk the streets at night. Like there was nothing out of the ordinary. The only thing that was different was the color of my skin. I, and, and they had this neo-Nazi organization over there that was beating the mess out of people. And I was like, I was like this is really bad over here. I can't wait to get home. <laughs> And about two days before we, we went to leave Greece is when we heard about Michael Brown. And we just, we knew for certain that they were gonna hold this cop accountable because how can you do that? There was nothing about that case that made sense at all. And they didn't. And you know, there's, there's a lot of talk about like the way that the organization and the leadership structure is inside of Black Lives Matter. There, there is no hierarchical structure there is no one overarching, like, defin definitive plan about what is going to happen. Because we learn from the history. When you have one dedicated leader, they can snap out that leader, and if they take that leader away, and that's the only leader that you got, the movement's done. But it was about distributing that weight so that you could focus on the, the particular concerns that are in the locations in which you are, as long as it fell under some general organizing principles like Fuck the police. I mean, um, reform the police. <clears throat> um, and ending police brutality and ending the impunity with which the police operate. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm a philosopher, so I could dig into some big things about like, like Plato and the Guardians and, and how the Guardians were like some of the most intelligent philosophers within society. And, and yet in America, they only, we only require a GED for most officers to become officers and, and what that does in a way that they think. And the officers used to actually have to live in the communities in which they policed, but now they no longer have to be from those communities or have to live in those communities. So they have no responsibility or connection to the people in those communities so they can act with impunity and go home like it's just a job and it's not a service to the community. And the, these are the things that were coming up. And that Darren Wilson guy, that wasn't the first time he got in trouble. And what happens when the people bring up claims against these servants of the community who are there to protect and serve, mm -hmm. bring up problems with them, they transfer them to someplace else. And so then we all just, 
We were like just mad. the priest to another uh, parish. Yeah, really. Yeah. 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 Been done over and over again. And so we hit the streets. And we just were there. And, and we hear this term, you know, um, you know, I know there's at least one in the crowd that doesn't like this term, unapologetically black. <laughs> right? And really what that was about was like, we're going to go to City Hall and you're not going to silence us. You're not going to give us your two minute warning and then push us out the door and we're going to shut up and be silent and sit down like good little Negroes. That's not going to happen here. Um, we're going to shut down commerce. And, they're, and they're, they're like, why are you down there on Black Friday? What does that have to do with anything? Why are you shutting down Westlake? Why are you guys going into these malls and doing these die-ins? Why are you asking the football players to put their hands up? And it's because the way that the prison industrial complex functions inside of this country with its connection to the 13th Amendment and the crime clause that's in there where we have slavery that's behind walls now, it's not as explicit and in front of our faces as the way that it used to be. The only exception to slavery yeah, is uh, imprisonment, right? That, yeah, it's the, it's the crime clause in the 13th Amendment. And the way that capitalism functions to perpetuate harms, is in particular with people of color, especially globally, like, and that's the link to, to like black power, because black power wasn't just the United States. Black power was a global organization. And I'm sure Jason would come over here and talk about his experience down down in South America where they got Black Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter is over in Africa and Black Lives Matter is in Egypt and Black Lives Matter is every single place that there are black people that are have their that are being oppressed inside of that system and are just trying to assert one simple thing. I am a human being. Now when I when I saw that from the Poor People's Campaign in 1968 in Memphis, Tennessee when they're when they're doing a sanitary strike, you know, and they're like I am a man. You go back like a hundred years and they're like, I am not a cow. And then you come forward and you hear black lives matter. And to translate that and put it into its positive form, it says, I have value as a human being. There is no negations in that statement. There is nothing inside of that argument that suggests that, no, that anybody else's life doesn't have value. Because the argument really works that all lives will matter when black lives are valued the same. And so in that, it connects directly to what was going on in the civil rights era. Because a civil right, technically speaking, is the rights of being in society, of a civil society, or being treated as a full human being, full citizenship. That, that's what, it, it's all interconnected. Nothing has, the battle hasn't been won. Well, it's amazing, though, that when, when white people come up and they counterpose Black Lives Matter with All Lives Matter, now, they didn't stop to think if you were at a, an event that was uh, dealing with, uh, say, uh, breast cancer, that somebody would stand up and say, hey, well, what about prostate cancer? What about, uh, you know, some other kind of cancer? Well, the point is that Black Lives Matter is a significant slogan and program simply because it's Black Lives Matter, the black lives that are at risk. It's the Black Lives Matter, that black lives that are being taken with impunity. And you know, one of the most brainless things in America is that you can't do reform in America. You have to do revolution. Can you imagine the effort and the money and the time that it would take to never have a prosecutor be responsible for prosecuting their own police?
that they work with every day in every way to make every case that they ever bring forward, it is a no-brainer that no prosecutor should ever prosecute their own police. They can't do it. They become the defense lawyer for the goddamn cop that has, is the bad apple, you see? Yeah. And so that is a small reform and it's impossible to do. So we have to do revolution, and that is to relook at the whole thing of policing. Mm -hmm. Policing should be, anybody that applies to be a policewoman or a policeman is, that's a prima facie case that they're disqualified right there. Because most men and so forth go to the police thing because it's like putting a motorcycle between your legs. When you get that big shooting iron on there, you ob obviously should not be a police person. Police should be recruited. They should be nonviolent. They should be not armed. They should be conflict resolution people, highly trained, highly paid, highly educated, recruited into a priesthood of protection doesn't mean that you wouldn't have somebody backing up somewhere when you have a bunch of crazy people that are going to have to be dealt with by weapons and so forth. So you, we can easily figure out paradigms of policing that have nothing to do with the kind of policing that we have now. Yeah. And nobody's doing that. Just that reform. Every police shooting should be investigated by an independent prosecutor, period. Period. And they should all be federally investigated. Because if you look at the statistics, it's a glaring, glaring thing. And it's almost incomprehensible why police departments go out of their way to protect the very worst people in those departments. It's as if police will do no wrong, can't do any wrong. Of course, they wouldn't. Every organization, including the priesthood, has people who do wrong. Those people not only should be removed, they should be rehabilitated, put on a lettuce farm or whatever. But the first thing they should be is removed, period. And the last thing that they will allow them to be is removed. <laughs> that guy that shot uh, uh, Michael uh, there, he had yeah. been, and all, if you look at all of them, they've been prosecuted over and over again. They've been complained about over and over again. They're protected by the union, by yep. everybody else, and they're constantly put back out there. Of course they would do that. And also, a police outfit can easily become a gang outfit. Mm -hmm. Because if you want to be an honest policeman, the rest of them won't let you do that. They want you to take the corruption. They want you to take the bribes. They want you to plant the weapon and so forth, because you're just like them, and you're not a threat. You become just as criminal as they are. So these are all non-brainers, I think. What do you think? <laughs> What do you think? Absolutely. So, more, right? So, like, black power was about self-determination. It was about, like, political autonomy. Being able to assert that, like, like was about beauty. And we're, we're connecting, like, Black Lives Matter with black power, with civil rights, with full citizenship. And we think about that. What does that entail? If, if we believe that people have the right to life, then there's other rights that they're also entailed that aren't, in, that aren't written specifically in that. Like we have a right to air, we have a right to water, we have a right to food, we have a right to health. 
we should have a right to own property so that we can have our own autonomy and self-determination and equal distribution. I brought up a question earlier that was about how can we have reconciliation when there are disparate balances of control of resources so that the people that are on the bottom are always dependent upon the ones for the graces so that they can have food. That's always going to be an unbalanced situation there, and yet that's exactly what we have here in America. And so Black Lives Matter and Black Power was about taking back control. Many of the ethnic studies programs, the black studies programs, the African-American studies programs all came from the black power movement and the assertion to understand our own history, to teach our own lessons, to learn these things that we need to know so that what we were given isn't like what they're about to get in Texas, where now the people who were enslaved weren't stolen from their land, but migrated to America. And that people that are in prison, that's just where we warehouse our surplus labor because we don't have anything for them to do right now. And make money on them while they're in there. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Oh, and can, I, please, in, please, can please. I insert one thing? Now, I'm talking about a controlled press in this United States. Do you know that in the last 36 months, and I wondered who, who has heard about, that, about this, the largest prison strike in America, in the history of American prisons occurred in the last 36 months. Did anybody read about it at all? I saw no. it on one place, anti-media, that's it. All right, anti-media. And I'll tell you this, it happened in Georgia. Every prison in Georgia practically went down. The uh, prisoners from the far right to the far left, including uh, black nationalists, uh, uh, M, all the Latino gangs, uh, the skinheads, the uh, Nazis, and everybody. Everybody says we're not going to go to work. We are, are we are, we're locking ourselves down. Wow. Now, they did that with cell phones and so forth. It swept all of the prisons in the state of Georgia. That's where CNN is. Mm. We picketed 24 hours a day in New York City at CNN and at CNN in Atlanta, cover the strike. There was a column about this long on the front page of the news, New York Times when it kicked off. There was no other coverage in the whole United States of that prison revolt, that prison strike. If it had been a violent uprising, every road around every little prison yep. in the whole state of Georgia would have been covered by truck after truck after truck with those huge things. It would have been 24-hour day news in the United States. It would have been worldwide news all over. Every prison in a state goes down in a violent revolution, a violent uprising. It's going to be covered. The only reason the controlled press in this country did not cover that was because it was nonviolent. And all of the powers that be in our great progressive administration, from the attorney general right on down, said, we cannot cover this because we will not be able to control a single prison in this United States if this gets out. The idea that this massive, massive strike could occur in Georgia uh, and we have to research it to see 
that it actually occurred is incredible. And if you don't think that we live in an oligarchy, if you don't think that we're already given up our democracy, we gave up habeas corpus, which our whole uh, justice system was based on. We gave it up without a whimper. Do you um, remember the huge debate in this country of giving up habeas corpus? No, you don't remember it because there was no debate. And any one of you out here that this country uh, defines as a, as a threat to national security can be arrested and placed in jail, not allowed a, a lawyer, not allowed a telephone call, and they will disappear you legally in this country. <clears throat> Nobody knows how bad off we are so far, except a few people here and there crying in the wilderness. And we're not going to cry in the wilderness anymore because the word is getting out. All right. Yeah. Thanks, okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. 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 Thank